Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Welcome to the silky smooth sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I'm your co-host, Scott Parkin, in Berkeley, California. And as always, I'm joined by... Bob Bozenko in, in Niles, Ohio. And today, we're very excited to be joined by Alex of Labor Wave Radio. Uh, we're going to get into this a little more deeply, but just a quick intro is uh, Labor Wave Radio is a leftist podcast dedicated to discussing revolutionary strategies and ideas for action. It's hosted by Alex, who's a labor organizer and sometimes a writer. Welcome to uh, Green and Red, Alex. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Maybe just to kind of kick off, you want to tell the, the folks listening in at home a little bit about Labor Wave Radio, maybe how it start, what it is, some of the topics you cover. I mean, it's clearly you talk about labor, but like just tell us a little bit about it to start off with. Yeah, sure. So Labor Wave started with my friend and I, uh, Andrea, who often guest hosts the show. So you might hear her around. She's a frequent, you know, correspondent on it. And we were in the same union together and wanted to just create local news radio for union organizing, as well as other activist projects specific to the area in Oregon we were currently living at. And from there, it just kind of expanded into what it is today to like talk more generally about anti-capitalist politics, sometimes topical issues in the news, largely like things that we just don't get time and space to talk about, like our After the Revolution series about, hey, what if we actually win instead of all this crushing pessimism that is totally valid today of how miserable and terrible the world is. Let's try to take time to talk about utopian ideas. Um, and like you mentioned before, it tends to focus most on labor organizing because that's what I know the most, feel the most comfortable talking about, but it's not exclusive to labor organizing topics and themes. And we're moving into our third year now. So it's kind of surprising. How long have you all been doing this show? Uh, since February. Okay. This is our first year. Gotcha. Yeah, we're still rookies. I, I think I'm still a rookie too, but it's, it's just, a, it goes fast. So yeah, time capsule a lot. This will be our 52nd episode. We actually have a special episode. Uh, I guess that was last week, or is that two weeks ago, Bob? Two weeks 50th, ago now. Our 50th, our 50th uh, episode. Yeah, you are charting them out. So you're definitely doing them much more frequently. COVID has given us more time than usual. So, <laughs> and, and lots of topics. There's been a lot of things talked about this year, too. Have uh, you found with the show that COVID has, like, this is something I've been thinking about, Labor Wave, ever since March. I know five years from now, I'm going to look back on it, and it's going to serve as a very <sighs> interesting time capsule of the moment of this crisis and maybe help me kind of mature my thinking and analysis on things. If I can look back, hear where I was at. I can hear some of my depression come through on certain episodes, some of my isolation and loneliness. And then other times I can hear how like revolutionary my spirit is. Have you all have you all had this kind of experience too during COVID? I I would just speaking for myself, I would say yes. It's almost like there's like a timeline that you contributed to. I mean, I I, you know, March, April, May is definitely like the sort of low point and then when the uprisings happened you know i went out in the streets like we raised a lot of hell in oakland in those first couple of weeks around after the murder of george floyd and like i definitely felt like a whole new energy 
and and I feel like that's kind of carried through. Uh, my my day job is I work at an environmental nonprofit, and so I took I, I actually have worked there so long I was actually able to get a couple months off on sabbatical, and so I came back about a month before the election, and there was just a lot of the exciting organizing going on. I'm you know less excited about like things like get out the vote and uh, election organizing, but there was a lot of exciting organizing going on around potentially if there was election crisis, which you know is not really panned out to be the sort of like earth shattering sort of thing, which is something that we talk about. But but like I, I definitely felt a lot of like kind of like new and good energy. Like just people are moving on a lot of stuff and it's it's pretty exciting to see. And and that me personally it's affected me. Yeah, it's it's been kind of exciting, yeah, to be part of like you know, we, you know, not Walter Cronkite, but you know, you're on the ground, you're talking about it, especially uprising stuff. Uh, we had a guest on last night uh, talking about COVID. It was her fifth time she's been on with us, and she's like know, a regular. She's a, a yeah, she's like a regular. But you know, I mean, uh, you know, we love having her on, but it sucks that we still, you know, it's been five times now, and things are worse than ever. So you know, something else I think we've we've talked about, we've been kind of proud of is like we've kind of been on top of some stuff too and covered things not only in ways differently than uh, main media or even a lot of left media would, but we've kind of, you know, kind of been at the outset, we've kind of figured stuff out. And so that's, that's been fun. You know, I'm stuck in a small town, so I can't do much other than this. So in that regard, yeah, but it's, it's, it's very depressing too. I mean, it's, it's, I keep going back to, you know, 73 million votes for Trump is, is really pretty terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. And, And so, you know, on, on the show, um, the after the revolution stuff, which you mentioned, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Like what uh, exactly is, what exactly you're talking about there and, and maybe uh, any points of interest or like, like uh, illuminating moments or anything like that? Yeah. So the, after the revolution series, the idea was that, you know, I come out of a, a little milieu of friends and comrades where we were really interested in utopian thinking and sci-fi that's like visionary. Uh, Walida Imarisha was a teacher in the nearby area where I was getting a lot of my political activation. And she was a co-author of this book called Octavia's Brood with Adrian Mary Brown. And it's very much about visionary fiction, trying to like inspire and motivate organizing like with a revolutionary spirit. And uh, it's my view that this is a very, very small niche of leftists that are willing to do this. We're so focused on what's wrong with the world and an analysis that is rooted in critique, which I think is really important and valid. But, you know, if like you're trying to recruit like a baby leftist to your organizing project or like somebody that's newly kind of reassessing maybe some of their liberal politics or their, or their moderate positions, we got to be a little bit more fun and inspiring for these folks. Like, I don't want to just go around being like, hey, you know, the world that's bad that you already are experiencing, it's way worse than you thought, you know, <laughs> and, and by the way, we have no power and we have no ability to like win anything. Like I hear leftists talk about how little power we have all the time. It's not wrong, but I do think it, it really lacks that vision that can help motivate people towards action. So the idea of after the revolution is just the assumption is that we win. Like, what would happen if we actually win? We should probably have an idea of the features of society that we want. You know, like, what does a liberatory society look like rather than one that's just based on exploitation, racism, and sexism, and so on? So that's the premise. We bring on a guest 
they usually talk about one specific feature of society. For instance, the first episode we did was with Raj Patel about food justice. So he talked about the dinner table specifically after the revolution. Like what would like our dinner tables look like if we actually win? And then from there, you can kind of tease out so many different implications of that society. Like he was talking about the dinner table would be much more expansive and the food would be much more local. And implied in that is that there would have to be real democracy and governance, that a global trade system would have to be premised on equality uh, rather than just subterfuge and exploitation, right? Rather than the dispossession of indigenous people from their lands. So these are the kinds of conversations we're trying to feature. And we have an upcoming one on malls after the revolution that I'm really excited about. The guest uh, was the, one of the hosts of the Seriously Wrong podcast, which if your listeners don't know it, it's like a super funny, they call it utopian comedy podcast, really great show. And yeah, he just talked about malls because these are these big features that exist today, these brick and mortar, huge arenas of uh, the market that are decaying. And, and kind of disappearing in some ways. So what are we going to do with them? Um, so those are the kinds of conversations we're trying to have. I'm like, what are we trying to fight for rather than just what we're against? Post, post-capitalist malls. It's a fascinating concept. It's interesting that I grew up in the suburbs of, of Dallas and most of the malls I went, this was in the 80s, most of the malls I went to in, in high school are all like gone and empty now. Some of them, have, I think, like, big thing is they've turned into evangelical churches, you know, that's really oh, interesting. Oh, there, yeah, that, that's happening even here in Ohio. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's interesting stuff. Cause it's like, obviously these things, this post-capitalism can go towards a worse kind of society. Like they're, it could be even more terroristic of the future and you could see malls become evangelical sites like right-wing Christianity. Uh, but what like Sean was saying is that they also could be community centers they could be spaces where people yeah. actually show up and do like exchanges of, I don't need this shirt anymore, but it's still perfectly fine. I'm going to throw it in the marketplace of this mall and like get something that I need temporarily. Um, so we have a lot of institutions in our society that we can kind of creatively reinterpret. And I think it's important for us to have those ideas that when we're trying to like bring more people in, because I do think that the left needs to be bigger we got to give them something that they can hold on to and hope for and not yeah. just try to like focus on the fear and the anger and, you know, the things that we're against. Yeah. Somebody's yeah. been talking about that lately, haven't they? Fear, yeah. hysteria, panic. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, a, a big theme that we've been on lately is the left rallying around the sort of a threat of a Trump coup and talking about Trump and, and everything that he does from like, you know, the 29 lawsuits, which he's lost all but all one, or, you know, him bringing the Michigan legislators to the, to the White House is like all of a sudden this like sky is falling sort of moment. And what we think is important to be talking about is like, well, let's actually talk about movements that should be moving on healthcare, on evictions, on jobs, things of that nature. And we've, and we, this year we've really seen uh, this actually segues perfectly into my next question is like, we've really seen this wave of mutual aid happen, you know, after the pandemic, we've seen this wave of wildcat strikes happening. It was happening before here in, in, here in California, you know, we've actually had folks from the University of California Grad Students Union on talking about some of the wildcats earlier this year in Santa Cruz and Berkeley and places like that. But, you know, wildcat strikes even like 
became a bigger wave once COVID hit and there, there were needs for better PPE and benefits and being able to take time off from work so you can take care of your kids, that sort of thing. And then the uprisings of George Floyd. And so we've seen this year has been a, has been a, a, a sort of like really lifted up to a new level. But in the last 20 years, we've really seen the emergence of these of anti-capitalist, anti-authoritarian networks that have a dynamic influence with like mutual aid and direct action. And so from, and just a couple examples, because we're both historians that we like to throw out, you know, Seattle, the WTO, Common Ground in New Orleans, Occupy Wall Street, Ferguson, Standing Rock. And so, you know, thinking about this sort of like a, a very visible part of the movement is even if the media and the, and the corporate elite try to ignore it or dismiss it, it's like, what, what do you attribute this to? Like, what is, what is the sort of like motivating or like the foundation of this? It's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I do think that for a while, these kinds of projects have had to, had the infrastructure laid down for them. Um, so like WTO, you know, when, as historians, uh, maybe y'all can disagree with this, but my perspective is that people like to pose that the WTO moment was this kind of spontaneous explosion, that it came out of nowhere, right? Like there was like nothing like this anti-authoritarian network that preceded it. It was just gone. Um, you know, there was no alternative. It was the Tina moment and leftist politics were totally crushed. And then WTO happened and like suddenly it's exploding again. But I think prior to that was actually a lot of base building, a lot of infrastructural work of like small organizations. And since 1999, I would say that, you know, it's ebb and flowed. We had the ultra globalization movement. We had Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, Standing Rock. These have all been these experiments with um, laying down a cultural infrastructure and like a network infrastructure that really, I think we've had to, in some places, build from scratch. But because of that, what I'm seeing now is I believe these mutual aid networks are emerging out of these existing organizations, these existing practices, uh, and they're really just a continuation. So I concretely, I, I worked for a union in Oregon during, uh, prior to the pandemic starting and then once the pandemic started, I was still in this particular union. Uh, we had really gone deep internal to that union in trying to expand access points for like average rank and file members to get involved. We, we thought we can't just expect somebody to sign a union card and then the next day become like a steward or the executive council member. We got to like figure out more roles and capacities for people. So we started expanding the structure. And within that, people started doing things like potlucks and exchange programs. They even wanted to like create uh, crafts for each other. So they had like a sewing group that would just meet and like create crafts and sewing products and things like that, just for the fun of it, just to be together. And then the pandemic happened and that caucus that was created that was just for sharing time became a mutual aid caucus. Like it immediately changed its face and they already had a lot of practice doing these kinds of communal activities. So they were able to expand on that and they merged with like a county organization that wanted to do the same thing. They taught that county organization a lot on like the logistics that were necessary. Uh, and we were providing food, rides, you know, grocery runs for folks for months and months 
uh, in the early periods of that pandemic. A lot of that stuff kind of changed because the need started reducing. People started figuring it out. But that mutual aid network, I think what motivated it was that there was already a prior orientation to doing that kind of work. And I think we're seeing it just continue to expand and continue. Yeah, absolutely. We, we actually had some organizers, some street organizers from Portland on back in August after the, you know, the wall of moms and the clashes with the DHS strike forces. And that is one thing that they actually said is that, you know, before they had been doing, working on issues around climate or around, you know, labor, and then they started doing mutual aid once the pandemic hit. Now, now they basically organize street actions against the Department of Homeland Security and fascists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, there's always a history behind these things. They don't just come out of nowhere. Sometimes I think we're in the position where we're maybe kind of chasing, you know, the, the moment, maybe a little too much, maybe we're too reactive. But a lot of times I think, too, it's like these are organic outgrowths of things that we've already been doing. So we should keep laying down the infrastructure, building organizations, and those organizations can tie themselves to particular crises that happen, particular political moments. Um, and that's what I think we're seeing with the mutual aid networks. I don't think it would be a hard argument to make that most of these networks came out of existing leftist organizations or grassroots community um, orgs, and they expanded or just organically branched off into these types of projects. I think this year has been interesting because, and this really kind of points to, to the stuff you talk about on your podcast about labor organizing. A lot of the stuff we've seen initially, you know, initially I think was kind of decentralized and small. You have Black Lives Matter, which is a, a big movement, but I'm not sure how it operates organizationally. But otherwise, you just had people kind of coming into the streets and they may have been involved with, with affinity groups or something like that beforehand. But then they constituted this amazingly immense you know, movement, 25 million people maybe, participated in, in various actions this past summer. I, but but I still I come out of an older left tradition which stresses the need for organization, especially unions. And at the at the head of the unions, you have people like Trumpka and and Hoffa and Weingarten who are, you know, were part of Trump's reopening committee and have really, you know, they're they're fossils in, in you know in my estimation. So you want to organize and you've seen the but but on the other hand you've seen a ton of, of wildcats which the labor leadership really hasn't sponsored. You've seen people going back into these toxic factories, meatpacking plants and agricultural fields, which the unions have, you know, you know, cooperated with that. GM is and the UAW are, are sending people back into plants, which are just riven with COVID. So how do you reach out to these people when you have this, this organizational structure, which is really a, a barrier to, to, you know, the, the union presidents, the union leadership is kind of a barrier to, to expanding unions in the United States and especially progressive unions. Yeah, I, I fully agree. I think that the labor leadership that you named, that you're right, they're dinosaurs. They need to get out of the way. Um, I don't think though that even replacing labor leadership is necessarily the solution that a lot of um, us lefties who pay attention to labor politics and union politics believe it is. Um, so I guess just, talking about wildcats uh, i've had a good conversation with uh, a writer and labor organizer nick dreger talking about the kind of differentiation between unions like the iww and unions like the afl-cio and while they have different problems with leadership different problems with logistics 
his main argument is that it's the political choices that they make are the problem and their orientation towards labor law. So there's like a machine model of unionism. Existing labor law imposes a particular type of union, a business union that a lot of people talk about. And that's a union that thinks that its entire reason for existing is to have a contract. So those campaigns are always about you start with a small committee and you win that contract. That's like, it's a recognition campaign from beginning to end. And then you get the contract, you negotiate it and you get better wages benefits. That's the promise. That's what the AFL-CIO is putting forward. Now the IWW, obviously they need to expand too, right? But their model does not believe that the premise of a union needs to be just on winning a contract is that you can win things and changes on the job as you go. You don't need to like have that piece of paper to give you permission to call yourself a union. I think that right now workers are seeking power in the workplace wherever they are. And when I talk to them, what I try to do is get them outside of that mold of thinking that they have to win a contract in order to make any changes on the job. Because they don't care about Trumpka. They don't care about Weingarten. They don't care about Hop. But like, if they even know these names, they're like, whatever. All I want is like a union to come in and help me build power in my workplace. If you go around telling them the only way you can build power in your workplace is by winning this recognition campaign and getting a contract, well, then you're setting them up for a particular mold of unionism. And that's going to encourage the rank and file to go in one direction. If you try to like cultivate a sense of like you can win as you go and maybe you want that contract at the end of the day, but it's not the only reason that you need to exist, then you could start seeing things like wildcats start taking more uh, expanding. You know, you could start seeing these opportunities to break that mold of unionism. So I guess going back to your question, like, how do you reach them? I actually think workers are right there. Like they're all there. They're all around. They're not hard to reach. Well, the problem is so many of the campaigns that we have in the labor movement are underground. Like we don't talk about them because that's strategic and they're all failing because they're all trying to steer workers towards a contract campaign. And we lose so many of those campaigns and we don't even talk about it. Like we constantly lose before we even get to the point of trying to file for an election. And even when we file for an election, we only win 70% of the time. That's what the recent reports came out this year. It's not a bad track record, but that means there's so many campaigns that we have that just go belly up before we even get to that point. So workers are there. They want unions to come in and help them out, but we're setting them up for failure all the time. Um, and I don't necessarily think that a different AFL-CIO president is going to change that. I think that the rank and file has to break the mold themselves through things like wildcats. Like that's the, that's the real promise I see. And the pandemic, I think actually provides a lot of opportunities for that yeah. because it, it expands those opportunities for rebellion. Do you think these opportunities have been shifting since Trump came in or, you know, it seems like, it seems like there's a lot more militant labor action. I feel like the West Virginia teacher strike was wildcat, uh, you know, wildcat or the, the UC grad students this year, that's been a total wildcat strike. Do you think that's been shifting since Trump or is that shifting before or is that just the pandemic? Well, yeah, that's a tough question. I think, you know, there was some of that before, right? Like Occupy Wall Street was predicated by the uprising in Madison, right? So this was this was like rank and file workers really being rebellious. Chicago Teachers Union that went big, did like a massive strike. That was prior to Trump. But I do think that Trump kind of intensifies the anger and frustration on the ground and also limits the opportunities to go in that particular mold that I was talking about, because the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, has been so 
proactive in a Trump agenda that he's really restricted the opportunities for unions to win recognition campaigns. So when they don't have these opportunities, what are they going to resort to? Well, workers aren't unintelligent people. They know these things. And you talk about UC Santa Cruz. These were grad workers who are seeing a Trump board that is trying to even eliminate their classification as employees. So like these folks know that they can't just rely on the courts, that they have to take power in their own hands. Wildcat strikes emerge from that, right? As well as frustration with existing leadership. Sure. I know their, their situation was a little different. But. So Scott, do you want to uh, tell all of our listeners and viewers how to learn more about the Green and Red podcast and how to support us? Thanks for listening to the Green and Red podcast, folks. If you want to follow us on social media, please check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please go to our YouTube page and hit subscribe. And then if you want to become a donor or just make a one-time donation, to make a one-time donation, go to greenandredpodcast.org and hit the donate link. And then to become a, a regular donor or what is known as a patron, please go to patreon.com forward slash greenredpodcast and join the, the large and growing donor base that we have. Thanks. Yeah. If I can blur the podcast for a minute, um, if you're new to this, we did a show with UC Santa, uh, with UC California, with the California system grad students, the UC grad students early on, it was like a ninth or 10th show. And then our second show was with the great, uh, brilliant scholar and, and, and longtime labor historian and activist, Stott Lind. We actually talked about some of those issues with the, and during the creation of the CIO, um, you know, this kind of uh, uh, drive to get a contract, which is going to be structured and, you know, basically prevent you from striking and, and you, know, you know, kind of really limit what you can do in exchange for this, you know, kind of uh, better wages, which, you know, after World War II worked really well. You know, working class people were paid very well in Youngstown, Detroit, Pittsburgh, places like that. Now, not so much. So, and, and, and I think, you know, the, the issue, you're, I mean, the people I mentioned, like Trump, Ken Hoff, or, or I, I think have to go, but at the same time, you do have a bureaucratic structure. So, even if someone who's more progressive, like, you know, say Sarah Nelson became president of the LCO, there's a lot of stuff to cut through, you know, to like, to get the teamsters to become democratic. It's, it's going to take more than, than an individual. And, and I think, and which kind of leads me to the question I wanted to ask was uh, here in Ohio, 56% of union households voted for Donald Trump. And in 2016, I understand I've talked to people who hated the Clintons for NAFTA and, and they actually like Bernie Sanders and Trump equally. Um, but four years later, after the NLRB is dismantled, you know, what few labor rights were left and how, you know, Lordstown here is shut down. You have 56% of union households voting for Trump. And so it seems to me there's also kind of a cultural issue there because here in Ohio, you know, uh, you know, we have these fantasies of Joe Hill and the Wobblies, but, you know, a lot of these guys are, are, they're not like that. How do you address that where, you know, you go into these places and you kind of, you know, meet people where they're at, even if politically or culturally, they're at a very different place than, than a lot of organizers who, you know, a lot of often are younger and they're, you know, kind of come from, some of them come from elite universities and, you know, they're, they're kind of different than these working class guys who, you know, want to go hunting on, on the weekend and, you know, wear a different Ohio State shirt every day, which I'm not yeah. mocking at all. So that's my alma oh. mater. So. Yeah, I have a couple of immediate responses. One is that I think, um, I, I listened to Mike Davis recently talk about the election results. And I think his analysis was pretty spot on in saying that I don't disagree that there's like some cultural significance to the election results, but he pointed out Biden essentially ran on the pandemic and Trump ran on the economy and yeah. in Biden running for the pandemic. He didn't tie any solutions to the economic distress that workers are feeling. 
And it was really easy for Trump to just be like, this guy's going to shut down the economy and then you're not going to have any jobs. And then what are you supposed to do? So I think that Biden just, oh, I mean, Biden was a terrible candidate, right? We don't, I don't know if there's any disagreement here, but he had no solutions. And he really picked, I think, one strategy that wasn't appealing to a lot of folks. I think that's one thing. But like to your other question, that I think is more the meat of the matter. How do you talk to workers where they're at? You know, I really set aside all those assumptions about people's predilections about their their political positions on things whether they're conservative moderate lefty liberal whatever i don't talk about any of that stuff i just talk about their job you know uh i go in and i ask them like all right what's one thing you want to change about your work tomorrow you know like you you show up to the factory that you're working at for 20 years what's the first thing that you would change if you had the power to do so and i just go from there and then try to talk about the dynamic of power in the workplace when I talk to folks about their HR agents and how they've messed them over in the past, it doesn't take very long for a worker to just have it made explicit how this person's not your friend. They protect the company. You know, the CEO, they're making millions of dollars during the pandemic. And have you gotten a raise? That hero raise that you got of $2 an hour. How long is that going to last? These conclusions are extremely easy. Like they are right there ready to be made, an organizer should just help try to facilitate that conversation without laying down like a soapbox. Like I don't go on about my, my anarchist politics. Like I don't talk about it at all when I'm talking to workers. If I start developing trust and relationships with people and then we have those conversations, great. But you got to start with the relationship building first. And I think that that's what you're saying is like you meet people where they're at, set that stuff aside and just talk about power in the workplace. I think a lot of like organizers are really shy in doing that like they don't want to talk about power they want to like just dance around these kind of deep questions and not make it explicit that like the root of capitalism is exploitation in the workplace and you are experiencing that on the front lines boss makes a dollar you make a dime like that kind of analysis every time i've just put that forward it is effective workers understand it it doesn't matter if they're conservative. It doesn't matter if they go fishing on the weekends. It doesn't matter if they want to be a police officer. Um, and like, that's like their hero. They get it. They understand I'm making $15 an hour working in really dangerous facilities. I never even see the owner of this place and they got richer during the pandemic. It's not hard conclusions. So that's how I approach it. Yeah. I read the Mike Davis article and, and, and I think, uh, Another reason, you know, Pelosi is just so horrific, you know, and they and they just, you know, reelected her. Um, yeah, during the entire campaign, no one ever said, you know, if we're going to shut down, you need to get two thousand dollars a month. Uh, you know, we have to provide you aid, and you know, and we have this bill here, and they won't let it get through. Yeah. But at the same time, and, and Scott and I have talked about this, I'm I'm a little less optimistic because I do know people who I think here in Ohio, if you went and said we're going to give you health care, they'd say I don't care, I'm still voting for Trump. I mean, in Florida, you know, you had Trump won easily and 60 percent of the people voted for an increase in the minimum wage. So I've always been pretty much a materialist. Right. You can go to people and do what you said, you know, offer them better working conditions and better wages and say, hey, this guy's making all this money and you're doing all the work for him. You're creating his wealth. But I do think that, you know, after this year, those cultural issues tended to seem, I think, a little bigger than I thought they, they were. And I hope I'm wrong about that, because. At this point, I think, you know, I've, and the people I talk to are older. They've already been established. They work, you know, during the heyday, they make good money. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they, these are guys who have great pensions because of GM and they hate unions now. They, they, they're they anti-union, even though 
they have cars and trucks because because of the contracts that, that the unions got them. So. Yeah, I don't disagree. I guess I just think that like, how do you move people? Um, and I do think that that's rooted in kind of like a daily experience. Yeah. And you have to build trust and rapport, right? So like, if I start yeah. talking to a worker, I don't know, I have to start where they're at. And I have to start with like that concrete analysis of like the experiences at work. And hopefully over time, we build trust and rapport and our relationship can help move them beyond some of these other um, cultural hangups they might have. But uh, that, that's what I think a lot of like lefties are bad at is they try to start with the ideas first. They try to start with like the cultural issues first. Um, not that that's a bad thing to talk about. Like if you're on Twitter or whatever, you're writing for Jacobin Magazine, sure, write about whatever you want. But if you're actually trying to organize a place, you got to- Wait, Jacobin aren't organizers? They're <laughs> not in the streets? They're, they're not movement people? Well, I, don't, I don't mean to sound too mean. No, 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 no. I, I'm, I'm, I'm obliged by contract to, to get a dig in at, at Jacobin on the street. <laughs> so, so. I just made yeah. But yeah, I, I guess I just think like relationships are what move people. I actually had a really good, uh, pleasurable conversation once with um, a publisher who ran a workshop. And in this workshop, they're a publisher of like a leftist journal. And they'd been doing it for 20 years. And they came out and they said, books don't, don't change people's hearts and minds. Um, but we've been publishing books for years and years. And we find that it doesn't actually move people towards leftist politics. What does is a prior relationships that we build with people. And then at that point, when we get deeper into the relationship and the rapport, well, then putting a book in their hand could really help, right? But if you start with like the ideas, the proselytizing, the soapboxing, the Marx was right kind of claim, you're not going to get anywhere trying to organize. As, as an organizer, uh, I find that that often turns people off. You know, I work on a lot of campaigns targeting Wall Street banks over their funding of coal and oil and fossil fuel sector and, you know, doing a lot of, we, we do a lot, we do a lot of organizing trying to get people like we've done a lot of work in, in communities like coal impacted communities or, or oil impacted communities. And then we've also just like done a lot of actions where it's on the streets of New York or San Francisco. And, you know, I, I find that a lot of activists think that their job is to try and convert a bank employee trying to go into work and like, and those are white collar jobs. And so I don't really have high expectations there anyway. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we train in like our, in our direct action trainings is like, First thing, you're not going to kind of change anybody's mind this moment on the street. You mostly you're here to learn how to not get your ass kicked by someone who disagrees with you. But the the thing that you do that es actually escalates the situation is you try and like change somebody's mind. And then when we worked in those communities, like you know, working in coal country in West Virginia is like rough. Like you definitely can't start preaching to like a coal miner or a person working on a mountaintop removal site. Uh, about climate change they don't want to hear that like they've, they've already sort of had there's probably also already a level of like cultural indoctrination where they don't even think climate change is real and then when you're standing in the way of their vehicles trying to go to work that's not going to help yeah i i think 100 percent. and like what i've seen with uh you know my fellow comrades is there's a tendency to want to change people's hearts and minds which i get i understand the motivation there but I think that reduces our political organizing to like the level of ideas and debate. And like, these are people that go around saying, like Bob just said, like I'm a materialist. And yet they go around acting as if like ideas are the motive force of history. And like, all I have to do is read a thousand pages of postmodern theory and I get it. Like, it's just like, what, what is this nonsense? How did we get here? But you know, one thing that I do think is this is, 
we could go this direction if you want. I do think there's been an abandonment of unions amongst leftists. Um, largely that came from like being purged from them, but I've seen this very strange reluctance and kind of wariness of unions in general that we've kind of like left that table and taken that away from our menu of uh, organizing opportunities. And I really think it's done a disservice to us. Like we're not in these spaces. Like organizers that are like staff organizers for unions, they tend to be like liberals and leftists. But outside of that, like we're not in the elected leadership positions. We're not on like in the factories talking to like rank and file workers. We've really abandoned that strategy. And uh, it's not totally surprising that within that, you know, the bureaucratic machine has taken over, right? Um, but that's just something I've thought about before. I hear like people talk about a dirty break with the Democrats. I'm like, why don't anybody talk about the dirty break with the like labor unions? I'm like, where are the leftists in these places? Yeah, yeah. I don't, you don't, you don't have, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Just a real quick uh, personal, uh, you know, anecdote is that like, you know, doing, doing climate work and there's, for a couple of decades now, the environmental movement is always trying to like build the blue green alliance, right? And even the more recent stuff, since climate has become a more of an issue for many people out there, and like moving on coal, particularly moving on oil, is that like the one of the main impediments actually to any kind of progress I find on a pretty regular basis is the union leadership. Like, fair enough, they don't want to alienate the building trades. But, you know, when we talk to rank and file, granted in progressive areas, or we talk to the nurses, the nurses are the most radical ones, I'll, I'll say that. It's like, they're all about climate action, taking a stand, you know, but like at the upper levels when people are trying to like kind of move with the union leadership on that, they don't want to talk about it. Like Green New Deal, like Green New Deal is like, it doesn't mention oil and gas because of the influence of the building trades on other big green groups. It's like, it's a, it's a, I mean, and to me, you know, climate change is one of the huge, I mean, granted this is the world I work in, but like climate change is like one of the most dire situations we have right now. And it's not Republicans and climate deniers, which are the problem. It's like labor leadership and, and actually the and democratic leadership, democratic party leadership. I mean, Democrats are, or I'm sorry, union uh, leaders are, are, adamantly against like uh, Medicare for all or some kind of, uh, you know, public health insurance program as well. So. Yeah. Randy Weingarten modified her position on it. The American Federation of Teachers have by resolution at their own conventions passed support for Medicare for all. And Randy okay. Weingarten as president has come out saying that she's not for it or like kind of oh, okay. like watered down her position. So yeah, I, I agree. The leadership is definitely out of step. Um, I, and I'm, oh. I'm kind of, I'm kind of curious that, that do you see with this with like with this new increase in labor militancy, wildcats, things like that? Do you actually what do you think the chances are of like sort of like shifts happening? Like even if they're like even small or minor shifts. I I try to be optimistic as possible, <laughs> but I also have moments of cynicism. So I think the possibilities are there, but I think that the hindrances on these shifts really happening are really big obstacles to overcome, right? Like the labor leadership that y'all are talking about absolutely is going to desperately try to shut down any rank and file insurgencies that they see within their own ranks. You know, um, if AFT has a local union, 
they do give a lot of local independence. I know that's true. But if they have a local union that starts wildcat striking and stuff, they're going to come in with their attorneys, their labor leaders, their people that have 30 years of like wisdom and experience under their belt to shut that down as much as possible to really like discourage and um, make very uh, pessimistic the rank and file that are leading those things. So I think it's kind of like analogous to how we look at Democrats and Republicans. They're both the opposition, right? One of them might have like the progressive speak that they use, but they're the opponents. Labor leadership is also opponents of workers, of like rank and file folks, like you're talking about. And a lot of these leaders, they believe that workers are like irredeemably conservative, like that they're backwards people. They're rabble rousers that have to be corralled and like led the way, you know, but you know, the labor leadership, they're not leading us anywhere except for stuck in the same mold of capitalist exploitation. Um, So I think there are possibilities, but I just think it's important to be sober in our analysis that like the labor leadership is going to be the first line of offense against any kind of militancy in the labor movement. Um, We've talked about that here before with some of our guests. So Um, what do you make of... Go ahead. Bob. What do you make of um, kind of, uh, for instance, California, the most liberal blue state, just you know, pretty easily defeated a, 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 a labor law regarding Uber and, and Lyft drivers, uh, which is really a huge setback. And so you have this, you know, the, the so-called gig economy now, where which is you know employing more and more people. Um, how do you reach them, especially with this this increased hostility, uh, and, and in some regards, state law? Yeah. I think that Prop 22 yeah. is is really terrible, definitely. Like, it's a, it's a big defeat. What I find interesting is that the reports that I was reading and some conversations I've heard is, you know, the, the uh, Uber and Lyft folks that were putting out propaganda ads and such, they really were predictably misinforming folks, but they were misinforming them as if it was going to help workers. And a lot of folks that were voting in support of this genuinely believed that they were like helping workers out. Like that's what they wanted. They wanted to help workers. Um, and they, and you know, it's when you got this big money coming in and you need like a really extensive ground game, that's, that's a seriously difficult challenge. Like I get it. Cause you have to basically talk to every single person and tell them like, that is misinformation that you're getting. And like, you know, competing with that is difficult. I get it. But I think that there's something hopeful in the fact that a lot of the campaigning of Uber and Lyft was trying to claim that what they wanted to do was create more economic prosperity for workers and more support. And people were like voting with their hearts and minds, maybe, right? Like they're voting with their gut. They believed, oh, this is like a good thing for workers. That's the way I'm going to vote. Like, again, the question about how do you reach folks? I I genuinely believe, it's as weird as it sounds, is that most people's baseline is communism. Like most individual people, like when you talk to them, you realize that if you just get away from the terminology, like the, the phraseology of the left that we love to like create five syllable words for every simple idea there is, people's baseline is like decency. Like they want, they understand that like together we have more power. My family is like a network of support. Like that really equality, dignity, these are things that are desirable. And if you start talking to them about like exploitation in the workplace, you find like a lot of workers come to like ideas that sound pretty communistic in their attitudes. So like just 
I just try to sweep away all these assumptions and stop thinking of like workers that have to be like kind of reprogrammed back in to like polite society or like the right ideas and recognize that you just have to speak to them at this level. Like, I, I guess to be more concrete, you know, my mom is an interesting person in this regard. When I was growing up, definitely conservative, had a lot of like bad positions on things. And in some places just kind of apolitical. I talk to her now and if I just, you know, I don't mention communism in our conversations necessarily. I can with my mom, at least I can be that honest, but she talks about like the housing crisis you know, she was a victim of the housing crisis and she talks about the pandemic and just says things like, we shouldn't even have to be paying rent right now. Like, why is it that landlords should even be making any more money? And this is a person that grew up working class, poor her entire life, never read a single sentence of Marx. And she's talking about things that are in the communist manifesto. Like these are just basic truisms. There's just common sense. And I think a lot of the common sense, contrary to popular opinion, actually is like a baseline of like communism. And leftist politics you just have to kind of tease that through if you're using words like even the green new deal well people already have an association with that but if you start talking about the ideas the aspects within it based on a relationship of rapport i think you can really move people there but that takes a lot of time that's organizing right that's just that just means like stop trying to take shortcuts you know we have to talk to everybody and meet them where we're at and we have to organize them in their workplaces build grassroots organizations it's a deep grind and it's just yeah. got to be methodical and patient all the way through. I don't meet many people who like their banker, their boss, or their health insurance provider. You know, yeah. people bitch about all of those all, all the time. But, you know, you have, uh, like you said, you know, uh, both the Democratic Party, which is allegedly the whatever. I'm not going to say left, but you know what I mean. And, mm -hmm. and organizers really are this first barrier, which is actually when we began this podcast, that was kind of our organizing principle that like just make fun of liberals all the time. Not really make fun of them, but actually critique them. And we, some of our early shows about that, that COVID and the uprising hit. And we still do that. We're going to do one on Obama soon, which, you know, and and, and it's, it's hard to get across because, you know, people get really angry and upset that we're attacking, you know, FDR and, and the progressives and people like that, you know, uh, so um, that's kind of where that question came from and, and, and you know, the, the work you do. Before we leave, because I think we're getting close, um, do you want to just kind of tell us a little more about the podcast, you know, how to listen to it, where to listen to it? Yeah, definitely. Um, so Labor Wave Radio, all of the content is available for free. We don't try to, like, you know, create firewalls on anything. So you can just go to laborwaveradio.com. That's where all the episodes and content is, also, like, articles that we share um, we're also on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts, so if you just subscribe to those places, you can find the podcast. Um, yeah, and I really enjoyed chatting with y'all. This was fun stuff. Yeah, and I really uh, appreciate your your point at the end there about organizing and you know taking out the the sort of jargon of the left and just talking to people about like the things that matter uh because i i feel like that's what's for 20 years as an organizer i feel like that's what's i i've attempted to do at times been sucked back into the world of jargon but like I, I think that's like a really important thing to remember and i and i actually feel like as we talk about organizing and what this like next era this next phase post-trump but like things aren't going to be better anytime soon is so that like that those ideas around organizing is really what's going to matter and a lot of people on the you know, in these left spaces are like, how did 74 million people vote for Trump? What are we going to do? Oh, my God, the country's so divided. And I actually feel like, you know, what you talk about is like what at least one of the answers is. 
and it's 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 an important thing. Like I have a conservative family in Texas who like I can't talk to about this stuff because they're so immersed in like some of these the culture war they hear from the right. And but if you talk about you know healthcare jobs things like that, they're always right with me. So mm-hmm. environmental environmental justice. So um, folks, you've been listening to Alex talk uh, Alex from Labor Wave Radio talking with Bob and I about his podcast and uh, organizing and labor politics. If you want to follow us on our social media channels, you can uh, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're also on YouTube. This episode will be on YouTube. And if you go to our YouTube channel, please don't forget to hit subscribe. We're trying to grow and I'm going to have my regular pot shot at Ben Shapiro because he has a million YouTube followers and our goal is to surpass Ben Shapiro. God, that's ridiculous. That yeah, that it's, guy has a it's pretty disgusting. Uh, and, uh, and if you want to become a donor, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com backslash green red podcast, or just go to our website and make a, a one-time donation. Uh, green and red podcast.org is our website. And it has been great talking and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks a lot.